Good evening. Had a wonderful crowd tonight. Very thankful for the presence of all who are able to be here. Excellent singing tonight. Thank you for your participation in the assembly tonight. Hearing the voices lift up praises to God was, was wonderful to hear, and it's been a great week to be here. And uh, Watching the song leaders tonight was, uh, Michael, they did everything you've been teaching them to do, and it was great to see that, and to see the, uh, the, the work that they're putting in begin to pay off, and the voices blending together tonight so beautiful. Thank you for, for being a part of that. This evening we're going to continue our study in the topic of exercising yourself towards godliness. The study for tonight has to do with the topic of purity, exercising ourselves towards godliness in the area of purity or exercising ourselves for purity. Now it seems to me that of late that when this topic is brought up, the topic of purity, that within the greater realm of what I would call Christianity, that every time this is talked about that it's always, not always, but most of the time dealing with uh, towards men and towards their uh, controlling their lust, that a man wouldn't look after a woman to lust after. And certainly with the increase of pornography today and the availability of that, that's certainly a topic that needs to be taught on. But I fear sometimes that because it's taught so much that way that purity relates to that, that sometimes we walk away with the idea that purity is A, only for men, and B, it only relates to that topic. But the reality is, is purity is much further, much more than just to men. It's for anybody that names the name of Christ Jesus. It's for anybody that calls themselves a disciple, men and women. And it goes much further beyond just that topic into every facet of our life and how we conduct ourselves. And really, that's kind of the stage that we're at in this study. I hope that you've been able to kind of pick up on how we're trying to progress through this. Tonight, we're talking about purity. We began on... Monday talking about how we think, that it matters to God how we think things. It's not just about thinking about different things, but it's learning to think differently, to have a renewed mind, a mind that sees this world through the mind of Christ. And that's where we began. Last night, we made the connection from that to our tongue, that salt water and fresh water doesn't mix together. And so the speech of a Christian, of one that is uh, a disciple of Christ exercising themselves towards godliness is one that ought to use words not that just tear down but but how we say things and what we say uh, is words that edify words that build up words that glorify God and so we come to this third topic now moving from just the tongue into our conduct and our behavior and knowing that it matters to God how we conduct ourselves and what we do with our life if you'll notice here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 about halfway, just a little bit past halfway in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus talks here about the importance of purity, about one of the attitudes that you and I as Christians ought to have, and that attitude is to be pure, that our heart is to be pure, that our life is to be pure. Now, if you stop and think about that word pure, it just means clean. It means to be cleansed, that it has no error in it. We might stop and go, wait a second. How can I, as a Christian, purify myself? Doesn't it take God to purify me? And certainly it does. We've read in the Scriptures, and you know the Scriptures, that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sins. It's His sacrifice that makes us right with God and makes us pure. There's plenty of passages we could turn to tonight that talk about making us whiter than snow, making us pure. And, that, and that's one type of purity that the Bible talks about. But as we're going to see tonight, another type has to do not with God cleansing me, but once I'm cleansed by God and declared just by Him, that I have the response, as we talked about on uh, Sunday, a living sacrifice response, which is my logical response to God, to begin to put off that old man and put on the new man. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about this type of purity. 
my battle against spiritual wickedness, my battle to put off those old ways and to begin to put on the new ways. And I want us to understand very clearly tonight that we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're not talking about never making a mistake, never falling short. In fact, if we look in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, the Bible tells us that we can't make that claim. He says here, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A couple of verses later in verse 9, he says, if, if any man says he has not sinned, he makes God a liar and his word is not in him. You know, the Bible clearly teaches, and God through the Bible clearly teaches, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For any person to claim then that I've never sinned would be to say, God, you're lying because you said I sinned. He says we can never make that claim that we've never had sin in our lives. That's verse 10. But in verse 8, if you'll notice, he's talking about present tense. He can't, he's saying, I can't claim that I have current tense, no sin. And if I'm trying to make that argument, all I'm doing is deceiving myself and the truth is not in me. So purity, the same Holy Spirit that told us to be pure, the same Holy Spirit that tells us to cleanse ourselves, the same Holy Spirit that tells us that our conduct is to become that of a Christian, is the same Holy Spirit that said, listen, you can't even make the claim that you're sinless and perfect. And so I want us to understand as we talk about this idea of what purity is, that we're not talking about perfection in my ability to keep the law of God. We're talking about a surrendered life, a life that's putting forth the exercise, that's putting forth the effort to do and become those things that God has called me to become, very specifically as it relates to my behavior. Notice, if you will, here 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. He says, if you're a man of God, if you're a child of God, there's a certain behavior that's expected of you. He said, you're supposed to flee certain things. And he tells us what those things are in the verses before that. He's to, un uh, to flee unrighteousness, to flee ungodliness. This word flee means to run away, to escape. And it has that very idea of escaping. Now, I don't know if you've ever escaped from anywhere, if you've ever tried to escape from anywhere. I think I know some of you, I've seen some of your pictures on Facebook that have gone to that, uh, what they call it, the escape room. And I know what you did in there. I don't know all the details, but I know you didn't just sit down in the middle of the floor and go, well, I should really try to escape. You got up and did something. You looked for clues. You looked around. Any prisoner that's locked in prison that's trying to escape, it's an active process, and that's exactly what he wants us to see here. Christian, you need to flee. You need to put forth the effort. You need to put forth the exercise to get away from these things and instead follow after righteousness. That word follow after means to persecute, to pursue. He's saying you run away from, you escape from wickedness and you pursue, you hunt, you stalk down righteousness, godliness, these kinds of things. We see very clearly that scriptures call for you and I as Christians to exercise ourselves towards godliness in this way, to pursue it, to hunt it down and stalk it. And so as we're trying to do this, what we're looking for isn't sinless perfection, but a life that's yielded to God that says, God, I'm seeking to get rid of those things. I'm running away from them, and I am striving to run after the things that you've called me to. And that's the commitment that, caught, that God calls you and I to. Really, there's another term in the Bible I want to introduce at this point that relates to what we're talking about, and I think are, is a connected idea, and that's the term blamelessness. I want us to understand what it means to be blameless. We know that it's not sinless perfection. We've seen in 1 John 1 and verse 8 that, that we can't claim that we have no sin. Yet, 
the requirements for an elder here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we're told to look at the quality and the character of a man, one of the things that we're told to look at is that an elder or a bishop must then be blameless. We know it doesn't mean sinless, so what then does it mean? The word literally translates unreproachable or free from censure. What it simply means in, in context and in application is that there's no blame that can be laid at his feet. Not that he's a perfect person, not that he's never sinned, but that that blame can't be laid. I want to use an illustration. Suppose we're looking at someone for an elder, we're examining his character, and someone says, well, you know, I know this one time he was covetousness, or he had covetousness in his heart. He, he behaved in such a way that displayed covetousness. And so we would look into that and say, is this man, is this his character to be a covetous person? Does he conduct his life in that way? And all that he does is covetousness at the core of who he is. And if so, he's not a blameless man because we can lay blame at his feet for being covetous. But what if he just was covetous once or twice or here and there? It's not a pattern or a lifestyle, but it's something that he's battled on and off. Well, he's not been perfect in that area, but there neither can we say that there's blame to be laid at his feet. Yeah, he struggled with it. He fell to it once or twice or here or there in his life, but he's not to be blamed for that because he's dealt with that and moved past that. It's not a character trait of who he is. And that's the idea that this word blameless has behind it is that that person can't be leveled, or that accusation of blame can't be leveled against that individual. Notice, if you will, here in the book of Timothy, this word is used a couple more times. Once is in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 7. Here in this context of 1 Timothy chapter 5, what he's dealing with is taking care of the widows. And he's given instructions on how the widows are to be cared for. Number one, that if, if they have children at home, they're to care for them. If not, they can be taken in the number, and here's what we're going to do. And he says, these things give charge that they may be blameless. Not that they may be perfect and never have fault in taking care of their widows, but what he's saying is be, give these charges so that, that no one can accuse them of ignoring their widows, of not taking care of the widows, of treating them badly. He's saying that should never be a charge that's leveled against the church, but... They should be blameless in this. And that doesn't mean sinless, but blameless in that. Again, another illustration of this is seen in the very next chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he talks here to Timothy. The Holy Spirit through the hand of Paul gives Timothy charge and he says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. That's the same word that's translated blameless in these other places, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's telling them here is, Timothy, you've got a job to do. Here's the commandments as an evangelist of the things that you're to be busy doing. And you need to or conduct yourself concerning these charges, concerning your responsibilities, in such a way that nobody can come to you and say, you're not doing your job. You're failing in your job. To be blameless in keeping these commands of the work of an evangelist means you go do what you're supposed to do. Does that mean Timothy was going to be perfect? Certainly not. But that no one could come to him and lay the charge that you've not done what you were told to do. And so when we begin to see what it means to be blameless, we get this idea that it's without offense, that I'm not to be at fault. And really putting it kind of together, to be blameless before God is to be in, living in such a way that I have no offense against God. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, the Bible says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. For a person to be blameless doesn't mean they're sinless or perfect, but that they've conducted themselves in such a way that blame can't be laid at their feet. That in their relationship with God, there's not issues in their life that are being ignored. There's not issues in their life that they're pretending aren't there. 
There's not shortcomings in their life that they're trying to hide from God, but there's no offense between them and God. That relationship is restored, and that relationship is a work in progress. And so we see here that part of blamelessness is not just, not that I have nothing to be blamed against, but there's no offense between me and God. In the same way, there's no offense between me and my fellow man. Notice, if you will, here in Philippians 2 and verse 15, the Bible says that you be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice this idea of blamelessness and being without rebuke in this world is tied to how the world sees us conduct ourselves. It has to do with everything that we're doing and how we conduct our lives to be lived in such a way that no one can lay a charge at us. That no one can come to us and say, listen, there's a problem between you and me and you're guilty of an offense in this relationship. What you've done, what you've said has caused a problem between us. Again, keep in mind, this isn't talking about sinless perfection, but it's saying that there's nothing to be blamed in this. I want you to turn now, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, and I want us to see that this is the standard that God calls us to. He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice he says we're to cleanse ourselves. Again, this isn't the sin that God saved me from. He's talking about putting off that old man. And that's what he means here when he says we are to cleanse ourselves. Notice the cleansing being done here isn't a cleansing being done by God, but it's a cleansing that we're called to do. To put off a certain way of living. That requires effort. That requires work. And he says, this is what I want you to cleanse yourself towards. Perfecting holiness. Godliness. Righteousness. God has called you and said, listen, I expect you to put forth the effort in your life to put off that old man and to become what I've called you to become by putting on that new man, perfecting holiness, cleansing yourself of these other things. And that's the standard that God wants you and I to see in our lives, knowing that when I yield myself to him, that it's a, a work of doing what he's asked me to do. It's not my righteousness. It's not my strength. It's not my ability but bringing my behavior under his control is all about yielding every part of my life. We talked a lot last night about yielding my tongue and how it's a member of the flesh. And he told us not to yield our members to unrighteousness. The same with every part of our body in our conduct, in our behavior, in the things that we are and aren't doing. I want you to notice a few more passages here. Here's the standard that you ultimately have to strive to achieve in your conduct. It says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he has called you is holy, so be ye holy. That's a standard that's up there. That God expects you in every moment of your life to be holy in your conduct. When I look at myself as a Christian, if I'm honest with myself, I've not reached that standard. I've not cleansed myself from the old man completely and put on perfecting holiness in my life. So that tells me there's work to be done in my life. That there's a work that God calls me to of putting off and putting on. Again, the same idea in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. According as He chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him. There's this blamelessness. 
There's this holiness and there's this righteousness that God is calling us to. The question boils down to this for you and I as disciples of Christ. It's not easy to bring my life into holiness and righteousness. I've learned a lot of bad habits. I've done a lot of sin that left scars and that taught me patterns. When I'm tired, when I'm worn down, it's real easy to slip back into that old way of living and put the old man back on. The question becomes, am I going to exercise myself to godliness so that I learn new patterns and new behaviors? So that even when I'm tired, even when there's all the excuses in the world, I don't default to the old man, but I've exercised myself towards godliness that I might be what God called me to be, putting on the new man. So what is the exercise this evening that I need to do as a Christian to exercise myself towards godliness? What are some specific things that I can do that will help me become what God has called me to become? Number one, I would say that the very first thing that we need to do if we're going to exercise ourselves towards holiness, towards righteousness, towards purity, is to get rid of our pride. You know, pride tells me that I'm not that bad. I'm doing pretty good. I'm not living like everybody else out in the world. I'm not living in abject rebellion. And yeah, I know I've got sin, but, but it's not really that bad a sin. And it makes me self-justify and try to excuse my sin and make it seem if it's not so bad. Because pride says it's about me. And as long as I hang on to that pride, as long as I think, look how good I look to everybody else, and I don't look at the heart of my life, I'm never going to become what God has called me to become. Notice this passage here in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 12. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. You want to know how to conduct yourself in life? You want to know how to behave in a righteous and holy way? It starts with having the wisdom that comes with the lowly, with the humble. If you're proud, you'll never get there. You'll get shame. And if you stop and think about your life, the sin that's in your life that you've been hiding, that you've been justifying, if we could pull that out tonight and the world could see it, if we could set it in front of this congregation, what would you feel? Shame, wouldn't you? You'd be ashamed of the way you're behaving. Once you know God sees that. And as long as you hang on to that pride, that's all you can expect with your behavior. You might modify it. You might snap the rubber band so many times to get yourself to stop saying a certain word. But if the heart isn't changed uh, to humility that says, God, I see myself as broken. God, I see myself as a sinner in need of your grace. God, I'm humble before your throne and I'm ultimately dependent upon you for salvation, for direction, for construction of my life. If you don't have that in your heart, you'll never modify that behavior good enough. But having humility in your heart allows you to be humble enough to turn to God to receive instruction. Romans chapter 12, beginning there in verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That word soberly there means sanely. That I need to have a sane, reasonable picture. When I lift myself up too high, what that really means is my thinking is insane. When I lower myself down here and say, I'm not anything, I'm not any good, my thinking is insane. I need to have instead a sane picture that I'm completely and totally dependent upon God, that I'm broken and that I need Him. You know, as long as I hang on to pride, I'll never get there. 
I'll never be willing to put in the exercise and the work. And I'll, I'll illustrate that quite simply when you look at exercise, when you look at the way people are. As long as a guy thinks, yeah, I don't look that bad. It's not that bad to have 10 pounds extra. It's not that bad to have 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever. As long as he says it's not that bad, you guess what? He's never losing the weight. He's never changing his diet. He's never going to do the exercise because he's found some way to justify that until the doctor says, listen, if you don't lose weight, you'll die. They finally find the motivation to see, you know, there's a problem here. I want to tell you, it's the same with your behavior. It starts with humbling yourself and going, God, you're in charge. I yield my life completely and totally to you. I'm broken and I need you. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 33, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. You know, very often those that we hold in esteem are those that are humble people. That comes before honor. But notice what he says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of the wisdom. I need to humble myself and say, God, you're God, I'm not. There's no justification for my behavior. There's no excuses for what I said, for what I've done, the way I conducted myself. There's nothing right about it, and I've got no excuses, and I've got nothing to say to you, God, but the fact that I am guilty and I need your strength. That's what humility calls me to, to acknowledge my brokenness, that I get rid of that pride and turn instead of to myself back to God looking to Him for the answers instead of into myself. I want you to think about a couple of things. If you don't have humility, if you're holding on to pride, there's a couple of passages that are important for you to understand. Number one of them is 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 where the Bible says, God resists the proud. And again there in Psalms chapter 101 and verse 5, and when he says, a proud heart will not I suffer. It's not just a matter of, well, it's a little bit of pride. It's a matter of if you have pride in your heart, if that's who describes you or what describes you, you need to understand tonight, you're being resisted by God. It's a difference between God not wanting anything to do with you and actively resisting you. He said, I will not suffer that person. Now, how can you call yourself blameless and pure when God's resisting you, when God will not suffer you? It's not possible to be that kind of person, is it? I can't be the disciple that Christ called me to be without blamelessness, without purity. And I can't get to that blamelessness and purity without humility in my heart that says, God, I need you, and there's no excuses for my behavior. So the first thing I need to do in exercising myself is develop humility so that I see myself for who I am, a broken sinner in need of the grace of Christ. Secondly, instead of focusing on myself, I need to focus on my fellow man. You know, a lot of time my behavior is about what feels good to me at the moment or a, a quick reaction to something. And it's all about pleasing my flesh and, and doing the things that bring enjoyment to me. I want you to notice in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment in the law was. And he answers and he tells them that number one was that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. That that was the first and great commandment. He said the second was like unto it, that you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. But he went on to say, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. What he means by that statement is every law, every command that came out of the, the New Old Testament was built off of one of these two principles. It was either about your love for God or your love for your fellow man. 
And I would submit to you that hasn't changed in the New Testament when you begin to look at what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, whether it has to do with the assembly or whether it has to do with how we live our life out there. It all boils down to one of these two things. Either it's about my love for God or my love for my fellow man. And if I want to develop a life that's blameless, I have to place others above myself. I have to have that humility. We see why it's necessary now because the second thing I've got to do is learn to be a servant to other people instead of serving myself, to look at what they need, what's beneficial for them, what would help them and what would strengthen them, whether it's a, another member of the church or whether it's someone that's in the world that's lost. My life is to be lived as a servant to them and saying, what do they need and how can I render myself to them? Likewise with God, what does God want of me and how can I render my life to God? Notice, if you will, here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. If I really want to be a servant of God and focus on God, I need to contemplate who God is. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, But we all, with open face beholding, notice that's present tense, not a future tense, that we will behold, but that we are beholding, he says, in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. Notice what he's talking about here. He's talking about people that are being changed into the image, glory from glory by the Spirit of the Lord, people that are growing, people that are becoming the disciples that God called them to be. How did they do that? Beholding the glory of the Lord. When's the last time that as you went about your day and you conducted yourself in your behavior, that you really stopped and thought about the majesty of God, the awesomeness of God, the might of God, the power, the glory of God, and how you might be of service to that. And you know, I'll be honest. When sin's in my life and I'm in the pattern of sin, you know the thing that's furthest from my mind is the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, the might of God, the glory of God. Isn't what I'm beholding. I'm beholding my sinful flesh. I like this. I enjoy this. This gives me pleasure and I want this. That's why my conduct becomes sinful. But when I stop instead and focus instead of on my call and I begin to focus on God, that brings my behavior under control. That it's not about me. It's about God and God. What can I do in this moment? What can I do in this second that brings glory and honor to you? And it's not just I need to focus on God and to learn to do that, but also focus on my fellow man. We saw there in Matthew 22 that the two greatest commandments was to love God and love your fellow man. Notice now, if you will, Mark 10, verse 45. What better pattern could I show you for this than Jesus Christ himself when he tells us that the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister to and to give his life a ransom for many? Stop and think about that for a second. Christ came to give his life, his time, how he spent his life, his behavior, his conduct. He gave all of that, not just dying on a cross, but he lived the entire life as a ransom for many. And, and you're right, God didn't call you to die or to give your life a ransom for many, but he did call you to serve your fellow man. And you know, when I begin to look at my fellow man and see what needs they are, it changes how I conduct to them. You know, we've all experienced that rude, hateful person. We've all been around them. Someone that was mean, someone that yelled at us. And we thought, I didn't do anything wrong. I just was the next customer. 
And we want to get bitter and angry towards them and, and react in a negative way towards them. But you know, when you step back and go, how can I serve this person? What can I do to be a blessing to them? What are they going through right now? What are their needs? What are their hurts? That begins to change how I respond to them. If I step back and go, you know, they might be having the worst day of their life. I don't know what's going on with them. I just know I need to serve them in this moment. That'll change how I treat them. That'll change what I say and what I do in their presence. Notice if you will, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. The Bible says, Brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. To be a servant. It takes the humility that we talked about, and that's why it's step one, that I humble myself and say, God, you're king, you're Lord. Now I'm going to focus my life on bringing glory and honor to you and focus my life on being a servant to other people. Notice what happens when I begin to do these things. It changes what I do. It changes how I do things. It changes even the motives behind the things that I do, but it brings my conduct into line with God. And so lastly this evening, the third thing I want to say to you, not only do I need to humble myself and secondly focus on others, but lastly, I need to admit, to confess and admit my sins. We talked in the very beginning that blamelessness, that purity isn't about sinlessness. But it is about acknowledging that I am a sinner and that I still need the grace of God. That doesn't mean that I get a pass on my sins. In fact, it means just the opposite, that I need to be the kind of person that's willing to run to God and say, God, I've sinned. God, I need your grace. God, I need your help. Notice, if you will, here in... Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, the Bible says that a man that covers his sins is not going to prosper. There's no value brought to me when I take my sins and pretend they're not there, to ignore them. And again, we're not talking about just my sins between me and God. We'll get a little bit more specific in a second. But what I need to do is admit that fault, admit that sin, and seek to correct that situation. Isn't that, we notice 1 John 1 and verse 8 that said, I can't say that I have no sin. If you'll notice, he went on to say there in 1 John 1 and verse 9 that I'm to confess that sin. And if I'll confess that sin, God is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So part of being blameless isn't about being sinless, but it is dealing with my sins. Being a person that instead of runs from God and tries to hide them, that I come back to God and say, God, I've fallen short of your holy standard. God, I've missed the mark. But it's not just enough to say I, I sin, but to engage in that battle against sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul there by the Holy Spirit encouraging our brethren at Corinth as he talks to them about the sins that they had and how they had changed. He says in verse 11, for behold, the self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourself. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what him and desire. Yea, what zeal. In all things you have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. He said it wasn't just that you went, sorry, my bad, and made no changes. It wasn't that you just went back, God, I sinned again. Sorry about that. I'm going to go back and do it again. He said, no, you dug in. It, it bothered you. And you made changes in your life, so much so that we could say of you, you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter, to be pure in this matter. You dealt with that sin. You didn't leave it hanging there. You know, that describes my relationship with God to a T, that what I'm supposed to do is admit my sins to God, that I'm to confess them to Him, and I'm to work to make those changes in my life. 
Psalms chapter 51 and verse 1 through 4 here, David acknowledged this when he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when thou speakest, and might be clearest when thou judgest. David here is talking very simply about acknowledging before the Lord that what his sin ultimately is about is about his shortcomings. And that he sinned not just as a general faux pas, not just a mistake, but he sinned against God. And he recognized that his behavior was against God. You know, that's part of why we focus on God as part of the solution of building blamelessness or building purity in our life is to recognize that the one I've sinned against is serious business because it's against the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the creator of my very soul, and I have offended and sinned against him. We're very often tempted in that moment to try to run and hide from him. And I think sometimes we do that because we're afraid of God. And I want to tell you, there's a place for the fear of God. But we have this picture of God being this individual that's going to scold us and that's going to rebuke us, that's going to chastise us for falling short. But I want you to notice what David says here, pardon me, in Psalms 101 and verse, or pardon me, 103 and verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like, a, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Now, in this context, notice it's all contingent upon being a person that fears God. A person that's concerned with purity, with righteousness, with blamelessness. And notice how God is towards those people. He's slow to anger. He's gracious. He's merciful. I want to tell you, if I want that purity, then I have to run towards God and say, God, I failed you. I've fallen short of your holy standard. Not afraid of him, but counting and trusting on his great mercy, that he has pity on me, that the reality is, is that God wants me to succeed. He's not sitting back waiting to go, ha ha, you messed up, I've got you now. He wants me to grow. He wants me to become those things. And he's there with his mercy, pitying us as a father pities his children doing all that he can to help us. But it begins with this idea that I fear God and that I'm willing to run towards God and seek his help in these situations. If I want to develop purity, blamelessness in my life, I have to be humble. I have to focus on God and admit and confess those sins that I commit. That helps me put them off, take off that old man. You know, that the way of the old man is to not acknowledge my sins, to cling to them. The way of the new man isn't sinless perfection, but in its acknowledgement of my sins and dealing with those sins. And not just in my relationship with God, but in my relationship to my fellow man. That I seek to be right in my relationships with my fellow man. That people can't come to me and lay level accusations against me of how unrighteous I've been with them and not dealt with those things. 
Notice, if you will, James chapter 3 and verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. We talked a lot from this passage going forward just a few verses later, verse 5 through 12 last night. But notice he begins the idea that not just with the tongue, but in many things we offend all. Here's the reality. You're broken and you live amongst a broken people. You put broken people in relationships. You put broken people where they have to deal with one another. And they're going to offend one another. They're going to hurt one another. They're going to say and do things towards one another that aren't beneficial for each other. That's just reality. God says you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be free from that. But that we have a responsibility to try to restore relationships. In Matthew chapter 18, he tells us that sometimes we sin one against another. In fact, he gives us the instructions on what to do. If your brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he hear you, you shall gain your brother. We had quoted for us on Sunday uh, that if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has ought against you, leave your gift and go be reconciled. Once you know the Bible acknowledges that, yes, our sin ultimately is against God, but at times that sin that's against God involves a trespass towards another person. And he said when that happens... I expect you to do the work necessary to be put in a restored relationship. Notice, if you will, Matthew 8, or Matthew 18 and Matthew 5. In neither of those did he give you the right to go justify your behavior. In Matthew 18, he didn't say, listen, if your brother trespasses against you, you go tell him how the cow ate the cabbage and what he's going to do to be restored to you. He didn't say that. In Matthew 5, he said, if you bring your gift, you, you don't have that right and go, oh, someone's upset with you. You don't have the right to tell them to go grow up. Quit being a baby. I didn't mean it. It was a joke. In both cases, he said, the only acceptable outcome is a restored relationship. Be reconciled. Gain your brother back. That's what God commands. These relationships matter to God. And if I'm to be pure and holy and blameless as God called me to be, I have to be in right relationships, not just with God, but with my fellow man, recognizing that I have to deal, acknowledge and deal with the sins that I've committed against my fellow man. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, the Bible says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. It's not just talking here about saying, Yeah, my bad, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It said you need to seek, from give, pardon me, seek forgiveness from one another. To grant forgiveness to one another. There's a big difference between saying I'm sorry and forgive me. You know a person can say I'm sorry all day long and never make a change. It's a conversation my son and I have very often at home. One of his responsibilities is to take out the trash on Wednesday night so that make sure it's out by the curb for Thursday morning pickup. And then we'll be sitting in the living room, the trash can's full. He'll walk through the living room and go, son, you've not taken out the trash. Yeah, I forgot, sorry, as he walks down the hallway to the bedroom. Always calling back, son, son, sorry doesn't fix the full trash can. It's nice that you're sorry, but just saying sorry doesn't take care of the problem. Even if a person's very sincere, that's wonderful, but it doesn't always end there. You know, we can use that term sorry to mask a whole lot of things. Matt, I'm sorry you got upset at what I said. 
I'm not sorry I said it. I'm sorry you got upset. Sorry leaves us a way out. Sorry's about pride. Sorry's about me going, listen, I, I patched it up. And, and, and you've even heard people say it this way before. I told them I was sorry. What else can I do? I'll tell you what you can do. You can go grovel at their feet and say, forgive me. There's a huge difference between saying I'm sorry and saying forgive me. Forgive me places me in a place of submission beneath you. Forgive me says to me that I need something from you that I'm seeking from you. And that until you grant that, I'm not right with you. It changes things. What do you seek from God? Sorry, God, didn't mean to do that. Or forgive me, God. It's no difference in being restored in the relationship with our fellow man. You want to be blameless. Be known as a person. Not that lives sinless and perfect. Be known as a person that's willing to humble themselves and say to their fellow man when they were wrong that they acknowledge it and they admit it and say, I need from you forgiveness. That's blameless. That's purity. Not that someone's going to say to you, oh, you've never sinned, but that when you do, you deal with that. You acknowledge it and you seek to be right in your relationships. That's what it means to be pure in the eyes of God to live that kind of way. You want to be pure. You want to be blameless. Humble yourself and serve others, God included. And then when you make a mistake, acknowledge it and seek to correct it, whether it's between you and God or you and your fellow man. The reality is, is we're going to make those mistakes. We're going to fall short. But we don't need to be those people that fall and stay there. Micah chapter 7 and verse 8 says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall... I shall arise. I'm going to fall. I'm going to make mistakes. But don't rejoice because I'll arise through the blood of Christ. Through the strength of God, I'll arise by doing what He's called me to do. I'll humble myself. And I'll focus on God and I'll focus on my fellow man. And I'll admit my sins. I'll admit my failures. And I'll seek to correct those very things. Are you willing to put in that kind of exercise in your life to become the holiness and the righteousness that God called you to? Psalms 51 and verse 10, the Bible says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. It's the prayer of David. He said, God, I need you to create in me a clean heart. And God will. God will create in you tonight a clean heart if that's what you need. But he's not going to do it magically and mystically. He's going to do it through your surrender, through your obedience, that you yield your life completely and totally to Him, and you exercise yourself towards godliness. You exercise yourself towards purity. So do you have a pure heart tonight? Are you blameless tonight? You know, you can be if you'll humble yourself and say, God, I want to please you. I want to bring my sin to you and confess it acknowledge to you and you alone I've sinned and God I want you to teach me how to get this out of my life you can do that tonight we're going to offer an invitation song not our invitation as we've said all week but the invitation of Christ Jesus he calls you that if you don't have a pure heart if you don't have purity or blameless in your life tonight's the night that you can get that but it starts with humbling yourself humbling yourself and coming down the aisle and having a seat on this front row as we stand now to sing this song.